I want to take just a moment to say happy birthday. Happy birthday to me. No, today is not the day that I was born, and it's not the exact day, but this is the week where in 1970, I came to faith in Christ, 50 years ago. That's a long time. I can remember everything about that night. I can remember where I was sitting. I can remember what the evangelist was saying during that week-long revival in our little country Presbyterian church and how the Spirit of God used His words to move the mountain of unbelief in my life and grant me salvation. So, happy birthday. And it is happy. But it's also a little sad because 50 years is a long time. And now I'm wishing that during those 50 years, I had sought the Lord's power just a little bit more to move the mountains and the lives of other people. You know, last week was the easy part. Pastors who, who, who love the Lord, uh, the one and only true and living God, uh, Jesus the Son, the Spirit, it is so easy to stand before a congregation with great vigor and enthusiasm, say, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's what I did last week. To say, who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain. That's what I did last week. But it's almost like a, a campaign slogan. Easy things to say, a little bit more challenging to live out, and that's why we're returning to Zechariah chapter 4 this morning. Because a couple of real challenges confront us in this passage. The first challenge is this. What does by my spirit look like in your life, in my life, in the lives of people who are seeking to, to rebuild? How do we apply that truth as we seek to move mountains? And secondly, what is the mountain to be moved? Again, it's easy to say the, the mountain will be leveled, that it shall become a plain. But, but what are we supposed to be moving? What qualifies as a mountain that should be moved? Should all mountains be moved? Now, I wanted to address both of those challenges this morning. However, time will not permit. So Lord willing, next week we'll talk about what by my spirit means. But this week we're going to talk about the mountain. What might it be? We need to identify the mountain because God gifts us with his spirit, you and me, to be mountain movers. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to ask you to turn once again this week to Zechariah chapter 4. Is it printed again in the bulletin, the passage? All right, so no, no, pew, no Bibles in the pews, but uh, if you have your own uh, or your phone or the bulletin, if you'll take that now. Zechariah chapter 4, and stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, 
with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bless us again. You promised to bless the reading and the hearing of your word, and you're so faithful to keep all of your promises. Lord, we look forward to what that blessing will be uh, in our lives today. We, we hope, we pray, Lord, that it's transformation so that we look more and more like the people you have created us to be and intend us to be. Once you've saved us and given us your spirit, that's what we want. And we pray that you would accomplish that uh, even more this morning as we come together around your word uh, by the power of your spirit. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I just want to review quickly last week to get us up to to speed. Uh, As you can tell, the prophet Zechariah in these verses receives a vision from the Lord of lampstands and olive trees. The lampstands were not just the normal menorahs uh, that we are accustomed to seeing, ones that were actually in the temple with seven lights on them. Instead, this menorah is different. Each of the seven lights has seven lights that never went out. Because an olive tree was on the right and on the left of the, um, of, of the lampstand, constantly dripping oil into the golden pipes that fed the golden bowl that fed the golden lamps. So, abundance. That's the message of this vision. First, an abundance of light. Secondly, an abundance of God's watchfulness over his people. Because verse 10 tells us that these lights also represented the eyes of the Lord. The Lord has abundant light to see everything. Nothing would be covered in darkness. Nothing would be hidden from his watchful care. Thirdly, an abundance of oil, which in Scripture represents the Holy Spirit of God. And so that's the vision. That's the picture. The verbal explanation that accompanied the vision was this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that message was intended for a man named Zerubbabel, the governor, because a mountain was before him. Look at verse 7. And what the Lord does with the mountain in this message, the Lord personifies the mountain and asks it a question. Who are you, O oh, great mountain? Who, who are you? Identify yourself. Of course, we know that the all-knowing God, the all-seeing God that's been demonstrated to us in this very vision, he's never required to ask a question because he lacks information. God knows all things. Questions are not for his benefit. Questions are for the benefit of those people that are required 
to answer the question. And so it is with the very first question that God ever asks in Scripture. When he comes to the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve are not in their normal place to meet him. And so God says, where are you? Not because he can't locate them. God says, where are you? So Adam and Eve could locate themselves. By answering God's question, now they have to identify their new condition now that they have sinned against a holy God. And so God here doesn't personify the mountain and ask a question because he isn't aware of what the mountain is or its size or its scope. He asks the question so that the prophet Zechariah and the governors of Zerubbabel will have to identify the mountain. What is the mountain really? It appears to be an immense pile of massive stones and enormous beams made from the cedars of Lebanon, which can grow to be 100 feet tall and 80 feet wide. These stones, these beams used to be the temple of God, but now it's in ruins and it's got to be moved. Who are you, old mountain? Is that really who you are? Or are the stones and timbers just the presenting problem. Keep asking the question. Keep looking for the real identity of the mountain because even after the stones have been moved, even after the beams have been moved away, the mountain might still remain. For Zerubbabel, the real mountain is that the way to God has been blocked. And as long as this mountain of debris remains, the temple cannot be rebuilt. And until the temple is rebuilt, God cannot picture again for his people the way back to him. Through the temple, God showed people how what was lost by Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned could be restored and rebuilt. So I'm going to ask you to follow along with me for just a minute as we connect some really important dots associated with the temple. Here we go. Many scholars believe that the temple built on the hill of Zion is modeled after the Garden of Eden. And according to Jewish tradition, Eden was itself on a hill. And scripture tells us that in the midst or in the middle of the garden uh, were located two trees, the tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden on the hill. Eden was like a sanctuary for Adam and Eve. In the garden, they served not only the kingly role of having dominion over everything that God had created, but also a priestly role that God had entrusted to them. God said, tend Take care of my creation as I would take care of it. But Adam and Eve abdicated their role, and they betrayed their trust. They listened to, and they believed the serpent, the created one, the one over whom they were supposed to have dominion. They believed, they listened, they disobeyed God, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which God said they must never eat. You know the story. God acted quickly. 
He cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of their sanctuary toward the east, away from the land of life into the land of death, both spiritual and physical. And at the east of the garden, God placed cherubim and a flaming sword to prevent Adam and Eve from re-entering their sanctuary and eating from the tree of life and living forever in their sins. What could be worse? What could be worse than to live forever in sin with no hope of ever being free from its stain or, or its chaos or its chains or its painful consequences? No future hope of relief or release. What an awful life. So God cast them out of the garden and he blocked the way of re-entry. But though God had cast them out, he also had a plan of restoration, a way back to himself. And that way was demonstrated by the tabernacle of Moses first and then the temple after that. Through the temple, God's people were able to backtrack the steps of Adam and Eve and come back into the presence of God. That's why the temple was so important. The the temple faces east. It faces the land of the outcast and the cast out. It faces the land of physical and spiritual death. And so people enter into the temple of God from the east. And they enter into that outer courtyard, the place that represents the world. But then the the priest keeps stepping westward. And he enters into the holy place through doors on which there are golden cherubim, just like the ones that blocked the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And in that holy place, the priest is leaving behind the world and getting closer and closer to the Lord. And there in that place is uh, uh, the table with the bread and the candles with the light and the altar with the incense. And finally, the priest representing the people keeps moving westward. And he goes through that beautiful linen curtain made of scarlet and blue embroidered with cherubims on it. And he enters into the Holy of Holies one time a year, the place where God dwells on earth, above the mercy seat, above the cherubim. And there sin is atoned for. And there the curse of the garden is undone. God made a way back so his people could return to his presence. Now that is the divine drama of the temple. Acted out before the people over and over and over and over again so that they would never forget that God had not abandoned them, that God had not rejected them because of their sin, but that God himself had made a way back to rebuild and restore. And that's why the temple was so immensely important because there is no more important drama ever lived out than individuals making their way back to the living God. And so it's little wonder that God says, Who are you, O mountain? 
you shall become a level plain, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. God's power will ensure that no mountain and no thing is big enough or strong enough to block people from coming back to him. And that's why Matthew, in his gospel, quotes from Isaiah 40 to describe the work that John the Baptist was doing to prepare for Jesus. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And the glory of the Lord is Jesus Christ. And God will not allow anything to prevent his coming. His, his ministry, his teaching, his healing, his forgiveness his death, his resurrection, because Jesus is forever the way to God. The only way to God. And you know the story. Jesus was crucified outside of the temple, outside of the city, in the land of death. And when he died on the cross... The curtain blocking the Holy of Holies into which the the cherubim protected the way to God. That curtain was torn in two and access to God was forever open through Jesus. Is that good news? God would allow no mountain. God would allow no thing to stand between him and his people. And by his people, I mean you and me. God made a way for us. He moved mountains for us. Whatever mountain that kept us from seeing God, whatever mountain that kept us from believing in God, whatever mountain that kept us from believing that we needed God, God moved it so that we could see him and so that we could see that the way to him was not through the temple but through faith in Jesus Christ Through faith in him. Listen, you and I got to move out of the land of death. Out of the land of outcasts and the casts out. And back into the presence of God. And the life of God. And the light of God. And the love of God. The love of God. Not by might. Nor by power. But by the spirit of God. Are you thankful that God is a mountain mover? And why did he move our mountains? Because he loves us. He loves us that much. He wants us to be with him forever, but also because he intends to empower us with his spirit to make us mountain movers. And if you and I are going to move mountains, we too have to ask questions. Who are you, oh mountain? We have to rightly identify the mountains, and the lives of others. See, lots of things present themselves like stones and beams, bad marriages, rotten kids, awful parents, terrible jobs, financial stresses, injustice, sickness, depression, the list could go on and on. And all of it, all of it looks like a a mountain of debris that must be moved. 
But is it really? Because if we move the debris, if we strengthen that marriage and straighten out the finances and address the injustice, there may still be a mountain. These may just be the stones and the beams. What does Jesus say about mountains? I'm so glad you asked that question because I'm going to answer it. After Jesus was transfigured on the mountain before Peter and James and John, when they saw him in robes of dazzling white and his face was bright as the sun, when they heard the voice of God and when they fell down, uh, in awe and wonder. After that, they came off of the mountain. And when they came off of the mountain, they encountered another mountain. Because while Peter and James and John were, were seeing the glory of Christ and, and in awe and overwhelmed by it, the other disciples were down below. And they had unsuccessfully tried to cast the demon out of a a tortured boy. When the boy's father saw Jesus coming off the mountain, he ran up to him and he fell before him. And he said, I brought my son to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless generation. And the father said, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus healed his son. Later, the disciples were with Jesus in private in the house. And they they asked Jesus why they had been unable to heal that boy. And Jesus said, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. What is this mountain? Jesus doesn't identify it specifically, but what's the context where this mountain is located. It's a context of faithlessness. It's a context of unbelief that manifests manifests itself in each individual person. So you and I have to get specific about the mountains because nebulous, unidentified mountains, they are crippling to us. Because they're indistinct and they're unclear. So we, we, we don't know how to go about moving them. They loom larger than they really are. These monoliths. And we freeze before them because they're so big. We freeze in hopeless in action. Instead of identifying them and seeking to remove them in the power of the Spirit. For instance... Last week, I talked about millennials. Have the millennials forgiven me? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. They laugh at me and they scoff. And I read many disheartening statistics about the spiritual condition of millennials. There are, are over 82 million of them. What are you going to do about that? 
What are you going to do about that? 82 million. That is a monolithic number. And you will give up if you believe that millennials are your mountain to move. You'll give up if you believe that all millennials are alike. Or if all of them fit the statistics that I shared last week. Listen, no two millennials are alike. No two baby boomers are alike. No two Gen X people are alike or or, or Gen Z. Nobody is alike. Forget the 82 million. Forget the, the broad brush characteristics about any group of people. Do this for me. We do this for me with those kind of statistics. Cast them out. Cast them out. Cast them out. Get to know each person in your life as a unique, made-in-the-image-of-God individual that he is, that she is. Identify the unbelief, not of the 82 million, but of the unbelief that's right in front of you. That one has a mountain that Jesus can move. And when we really believe that, then we begin asking Jesus to remove it. Just as the Lord of hosts moved the mountain so that the temple, the way back to God, could be rebuilt, so Jesus removes mountains of faithlessness and lack of belief that keep people from God. So, here's the question. Questions. Do you believe that God wants people to come to Him? Do you believe that God wants to grant them life, life now, eternal life? Do you believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? Do you believe? Because if you believe, then you're going to want to take your place in line behind Zerubbabel and your place in history and partner with God as a mountain mover. That's what I long for us to do, not only as individuals, but as a church, to be mountain movers. I want that to captivate our attention, to ignite our passion so that we focus our prayers on asking God by his power to move the mountains of others as he removed the mountains in our lives as we live out and speak out the gospel to them. And what is that really but being what Jesus called us to be, disciple makers. As you go into the world, as you live in the world, as you speak in the world, make disciples. Moving the mountains of the people who are right before us, just as this father fell at the feet of Jesus. Know those people. Know them. Talk to them. Ask them questions. Just like we see God doing. Just like we see Jesus doing. This is the work of a mountain mover. Why do they not believe? Find out. This is the work of a mountain mover. What are their obstacles to faith? Find out. What are their objections to God? Either as Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. Find out. Why do they believe they don't need to believe? Do you know that our culture has redefined salvation? Do you know what salvation now means? Salvation means being saved from the idea that you need to be saved. 
That's what our culture is doing now. Telling people, saving people from the idea that they need to be saved at all. We have to talk to people. We got to live among them. We got to find the debris that blocks them from faith in Christ. Don't be intimidated. And let me tell you this, please. You do not have to have a PhD in apologetics before you can engage someone with the good news of Jesus Christ because God has equipped you and me for this task. Don't be afraid that you might not have all the answers. You're not on your own. The Spirit of God is with you. If you mess up, go back again to that person in humility. God's not going to let go of them that easily. Don't think so much of yourself. If you don't know the answer, find out. It doesn't take great faith. Jesus says here, it takes faith the size of a mustard seed. And Jesus tells us about those mustard seeds. They are so tiny, so small. But the mustard seed grows and grows and grows. And it grows because it stays vitally connected to to the nutrients and to the sun it needs. And when it grows, it grows, it grows. It becomes so big that the birds of the air can build their nests in it. You just need that small amount of faith, just that much. Faith that stays vitally connected to Christ. A faith that does not give up in despair at the first sign of defeat, but a faith that keeps believing and a faith that keeps praying. I have a daughter that I'm praying that for. And guess what? I might have tears, but I have faith and I have hope. And you know why? Because I know through Christ, I, I am connected to the inexhaustible resources of the loving God for whom nothing is impossible. And that gives me faith and that gives me hope. And that's what Zachariah's vision reminds us of. So you too have faith, have hope. Who are you? Oh, great mountain. You're going to become a plain if you believe it. Pray it. Start identifying mountains of unbelief and become a mountain mover. People need Jesus. And they need him right now. And they need him forever. And we can give our lives to no greater cause than being mountain movers, i.e. disciple makers. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. The pictures, we need them. Lord, this, this vision, we need the, the, the picture of it, the power of it, the abundance of it, abundance of light, your vision, your spirit. We, we need to see it. Lord, we need the, the picture of that temple because it puts us before us the, the path that we need to take, Lord, as we move out of the land of darkness, as you move us out of the land of death, the land of the east, and you move us into your presence, no longer through the temple, but through the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we have these 
mental images of what you've done for us, but also, Lord, they serve as pictures to remind us of what you can do and are doing in the lives of others. And so pray, Lord, that you would cause us to want to be mountain movers as well. Not in our strength, not in our might. You've already told us that. But by your spirit, help us move mountains of unbelief in others so they might come to know you and enjoy you forever. The one and only true and living God in whose name we pray. Amen.